one comes from Job chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Moving across to the New Testament, reading from Philippians, Acts of Philippians. This is Paul's writing. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just wanted to talk to you guys today, and I thought the pulpit, I'll leave it for the ministers and for proper sermons. Um, We just heard Emma read from Philippians, and in that passage we hear a bit about Paul's heart to know God more, more deeply. And so he says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Two verses before that, in verse 8, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. When Jesus is praying to the Father shortly before the crucifixion, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so as it turns out, eternal life isn't just about living forever. Eternal life has to do with knowing God, knowing the Father, knowing the Son. And it's, I guess, a two-way relationship. As we draw near to God, God draws near to us. And as we come to know God, in a sense, God comes to know us, which sounds weird because God created us. He surely knows us all. And yet, when Jesus tells his disciples about Judgment Day, he says to them that some people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus will reply, I never knew you. And those are such scary words to hear from the creator who formed us in our mother's womb. For him to say, I never knew you. And I guess it highlights to me the importance of the relationship we have with God. 
to know God and to be known by him. That has everything to do with eternal life and even with judgment. And I guess I say all this to give you some context or some things to think about when we look at this one particular verse in the book of Job, which comes towards the end of the story. It's after all of Job's sufferings and after God appears and speaks to Job. And it's in his reply right towards the end when Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I think it's such a pivotal verse. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And for Job, that changes everything. Before I go on, I probably should give you a rundown of the story of Job, uh, just in case there are some people who aren't familiar with his story. So Job lived a long time ago. People think around the time of the patriarchs, so maybe around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referred to, obviously, in the book of Job, but also in the book of Ezekiel uh, and in James. And so it seems as if Job is a real person. He's not just a character in some parable or allegory. Job is, on all measures, a very successful person. So he's rich, which means in those days he owned a lot of oxen and donkeys and camels and sheep. And he had a lot of servants in his household. He was married with uh, seven sons and three daughters. And he was very well respected by the people around him. Most importantly, I guess, is that Job is praised by God as someone who is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. So much so that God boasts about Job to Satan one day. And Satan replies, he says, well, of course Job is faithful. You've put a hedge around him. You've protected him and you've blessed the work of his hands. Reach out your hand and strike everything that Job has and he will curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, everything that Job has is in your hands but you cannot lay a hand on Job himself. And so off Satan goes, and the next thing that happens, we see calamity before Job. So uh, we see a, a group of raiders come and take away all the oxen and donkeys. Another group of invaders come and they take away his camels. Fire falls from heaven and kills all his sheep. A building collapses and kills all of Job's children. And in each incident, all of Job's servants at the scene are killed, except for one who then goes and tells Job the bad news. When all of this happens, Job's response initially is pretty amazing. He falls to the ground and he worships God. And he says that famous line, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God again boasts about Job to Satan. And Satan says, well, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bone, and he will curse you to your face. And so God says to Satan, okay, Job is in your hands, but you cannot kill him. And so off Satan goes, and the next thing that we know, Job's uh, body breaks out in painful sores all over. And we hear how Job describes later on how his skin turns black and peels how his body burns with fever and he can't sleep at night. And in the midst of so much pain and suffering, his wife, who has survived up until now, Job's wife says to him, just curse God and die. Just be done with it. But Job is so solid. He's faithful and stoic. And he says, shall we accept good from God 
and not trouble. And so Job remains faithful. But over time, that stoic approach fades away. Job doesn't remain so stoic throughout. And we don't know why. It could be the fact that his loss, his tragedy finally sinks in. It could be the agony of his physical affliction. It could be his friends who've come to Job and basically accuse him of having done some sin and that God is punishing him because he's done something terrible. For whatever reason, Job's stoic nature doesn't last. And I'll read some verses to you uh, to show you what Job says later on. He says in chapter 7, verse 20, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? In Job 10, verse 1 and 3, Job says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Job says in chapter 19, verse 6 to 7, and verse 11, he says, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. In Job chapter 23, verse 3 and 4, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And so over time, Job does have big questions for God, and he does have complaints, and he does have arguments. And he seems a bit more like one of us when we go through difficult times. We do have questions. We have complaints. We have arguments we want to bring before God. And then God finally appears towards the end of the story. And I was saying before that when God appears, everything changes, which I think is true. But in another sense, nothing changes. Because when God speaks to Job, he basically bombards him with rhetorical questions and facts about creation, which all highlight God's infinite wisdom and knowledge and power and Job's lack thereof. Job doesn't get any answers. And the thing is, everything that God says, Job already knew before he met God. So this is what Job says about God before he even met him. In chapter 9, Job says, How can a mortal be righteous before God? Will one wish to dispute with him? He could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? In Job chapter 12, verse 13, Job says, To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. And so Job gets no new information from God. He doesn't even get the backstory between God and Satan. And yet, one thing is different. And one thing changes everything. Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And that makes all the difference. Job has finally met God. And 
even though he doesn't get any answers, suddenly all of his questions, all of his complaints, and all his arguments, they disappear. Job doesn't have them anymore because he has met God. He hasn't just heard about him, he has finally seen him. And so he goes on to say, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The only thing is he may not have actually said that. So if you look at the Hebrew, there is ambiguity in that translation, and it can be translated quite differently. He could have said, therefore I retract or I recant and am comforted in dust and ashes. And I'll just go through with you some of the points about the Hebrew. I'm not a a Hebrew expert by any means, but um, I understand that that is a possibility. And I'll give you some reasons why I think the alternative translation might be more likely. First of all, in the first line when Job says, therefore I despise myself or I retract. In the Hebrew, there is no direct object. It is literally, I reject or I despise. The problem is in English, you can't just say, I despise. You have to despise something. You have to reject something. And so some translators believe he rejects himself or he despises himself. Other people believe that Job despised or retracted what he has said. The reason why I think the alternative translation is more likely is for, well, two reasons. Firstly, you could argue that Job despised himself even before he met God. In chapter 3, Job curses the day of his birth. In chapter 10, Job wishes he was never born. In chapter 7 and 9, Job says, I loathe my life. And actually, in chapter 7, it's a very similar construct in the Hebrew. It's, I despise or I reject. And so it may well be that Job already despised himself before he met God, in which case it doesn't make sense for him to say, I despise myself having met God. The second reason is that there is a better flow of logic in the alternative translation. So when God first shows up, he speaks. Job replies briefly. God speaks again, and there's a second reply by Job. Now, the first time that Job replies to God, he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. That's Job's first reply to God. He's saying he's spoken enough, maybe too much. And so it makes sense in Job's second reply that not only has he spoken enough or too much, that he would look to retract or to take back some of his words. And we heard what Job had said before, calling God his enemy. Um, And so there are certain things that Job has said where he might very well want to retract his words. And so those are the reasons why I think the alternative translation is likely, but it's up to you to decide for yourselves on that point. The second line goes, um, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes or am comforted in dust and ashes. And if you're like me, you would say, surely Job repents in dust and ashes because isn't that what people do in biblical days? Don't they repent in dust and ashes? As it turns out, not really. You might be thinking of sackcloth and ashes. That was the mode that people sort of repented. And so, for example, when Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, the king hears the message. He takes off his royal robes and he puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. When Jesus rebukes the two cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, 
in the Gospels. He says, if the miracles that have been performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so sackcloth and ashes is very much to do with repentance. Dust and ashes, not so much. In fact, the specific phrase dust and ashes is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Once, when we're looking at here, once in Genesis 18, when Abraham is talking to God about the city of Sodom, and Abraham's interceding, in a sense, for Sodom. And he says to God, if you find 50 righteous people in that city, will you spare it? And God says, sure. If there's 50 righteous people in that city, I will spare it. And then Abraham, who is very aware that he's talking to God Almighty, he tries to negotiate, in a sense, with God. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 18. He says, Indeed, now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? And so in this context, dust and ashes refers to Abraham's humble and lowly state. He knows he's talking to Almighty God, and so he doesn't want to overstep the boundaries. There's no indication of repentance in this passage. The other time that dust and ashes is mentioned is actually earlier in the book of Job. And Job is talking about how his affliction has affected him. And so in Job chapter 30, verse 17 to 19, he says, My bones are pierced in me at night, and my gnawing pains take no rest. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Again, dust and ashes refers to Job being reduced to a broken state or a humbled, lowly state. It has nothing to do with repentance. And so for that reason, I think potentially Job didn't repent in dust and ashes, but that he was comforted in dust and ashes, which is the alternative translation for that Hebrew word, Nahum. And I apologize if anyone actually knows ancient Hebrews, but um, that word Nahum is most frequently translated as comfort or consoled. Um, and so a few verses later, in the story, Job has his brothers and sisters and those who know him, they come to Job and they comfort and console him. And that second word is the same word used, Nahum. That word is also the same word that we read in Psalms 23 when it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That is the same word. And so it may be that right towards the end, Job says that I am comforted even in my lowly state, even in dust and ashes, which I've been reduced to because of my affliction, I've met God and I am comforted. The question, I guess, for you is, does this matter? And in some sense, you could say it doesn't matter which translation you use because we know that Job has finally met God and all his questions disappear, and that doesn't change. But on the other hand, it might matter a lot and I went through all of this sort of digression because I didn't want to leave you with the wrong impression of God and what an encounter with him might be like. We do know from other stories in the Bible that when people meet God, they're often aware of their shortcomings and their sin. But there's also a very quick assurance by God when someone comes to God and meets him and they're humbled by God. Um, I think about a month ago, we had a couple of uh, passages that were read 
One was in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned. And Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And yet, immediately, an angel, a seraphim, takes a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. The other story we, we read in that Sunday was when Peter encountered Jesus early on. And Jesus brought about a miraculous catch of fish. And Peter runs to Jesus and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus responds, fear not, from now on you will catch men. And again, there is this very quick assurance from Jesus, fear not, the commissioning for his mission. Um, the last example is in the parable of the prodigal son. And we read a bit about that in the order of service. When the prodigal son comes back to the father, he decides that maybe he could be accepted as not even a son, but maybe as a hired servant. He returns to the father, and the father, he sees the, the, the son from afar off, and he runs to him, and he embraces him. And even as a son spits out an apology, a repentance, the father is calling for a feast and celebration. And that's a picture of how eager God is to assure us and to embrace us when there's even a whiff of repentance. And so I didn't want you to leave, I didn't want to leave you with the impression that Job might speak with God and just end up despising himself and repenting without God's very quick assurance and his very gracious forgiveness and restoration. How you take that, um, it's up to you, but that's sort of why I think the alternative translation is probably a more likely one. Now, in the end of the story, we're not told, and Job is certainly not told, why he went through all his sufferings. We know the backstory between God and Satan, but we also know that God isn't so petty that he would let Job suffer so much just so he'd win an argument with Satan. There must be more. And we know that in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We do know, as Job says, that because he's met God, he somehow knows God better, more deeply. He hasn't just heard about God anymore. He has seen God. And maybe for Job, it's all worth it. As the Apostle Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Job had lost all things, and yet he got to meet God. And so maybe, maybe it was worth it. And I guess there is a risk, if we look at his life, that if we were to serve God and to do all the right things, you know, if we go to church and we read the Bible and we pray and we donate our money and we serve the, the needy, but if we don't have that encounter with God, if we don't know his presence, if we don't have an intimate relationship with God, there is a risk that we become like the older brother, 
in the parable of the prodigal, prodigal son. When he hears the celebration, he storms off. And he complains to the father because he has been slaving for his father for so many years. And he's jealous of the younger brother and the grace that's shown to him. And then the father goes to the older brother. And I love what the father says. He says, my son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. I love how the father emphasizes relationship in his reply. He says, my son, not just a servant, not a slave. My son, you are always with me. And there's such a privilege, you know, to be in the father's house, to work with him and under him. It might seem more fun to do what the younger brother did, to spend your money on wild living, but we know that that ends in despair. So much better to stay in the father's house and in his presence. And then the father says, everything I have is yours, which speaks to inheritance. And the thing about inheritance is that it doesn't matter how hard you work, you can't earn inheritance. Inheritance is given to you out of relationship. And so I love that response from the father to the older son. And you know, there is a difference between just being around the father versus being with him and connecting with him. And that's what the older brother missed out on, even though he was with the father in a sense, he wasn't really with the father. There's a story in the gospels of Jesus when he's making his way to a young girl who's dying and there's a crowd following along and there's people jostling all about and as Jesus makes his way, he suddenly stops and he says, who touched me? And Peter says, how can you say that? There are people crowding in and pressing against you. How can you say who touched me? And yet Jesus says, no, someone touched me. I felt power leave me. And we know that in that crowd, there was one person who reached out to Jesus, who put all her hope and all her trust in him and in this one encounter. She was a woman who had suffered from a bleeding condition for 12 years. She'd been looking for a cure and she'd only got worse and she was financially drained. She would have been considered unclean in the society and so an outcast. She came to Jesus with a different attitude. She wasn't just wanting to be around him. She wanted to reach out and touch him. And you know, when Paul says that I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that woman received some of that power when she touched Jesus and that power healed her. She knew a bit of what it was about the resurrection power of Jesus. And I think it's like that for us. You know, when we can come to church and we can be in the proximity of God, we can hear a bit about him in the sermon or in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the conversations that we have. But there's a difference when we are desperate for God and longing to meet him and we're putting all of our hope in finding God. And it doesn't have to be obviously in a church setting. We could pursue God going to a park or on a bus or on a train or while driving. We could be flying halfway around the world chasing God, whatever it is. 
there's a difference between just being around God in church versus really seeking Him. In the Bible, there are lots of examples of people who pursued God, and they all did it in different ways. You know, we read about God telling Abraham to leave his country and his people and his father's household and to go to a place that God would show him. And Abraham just up and left. Jacob wrestled with God all through the night and wouldn't let go until God blessed him. Elijah went up a mountain and into a cave and after a a violent wind and an earthquake and fire, he hears a still small voice calling to him and he goes out to meet God. Zacchaeus figures he should climb a tree because he's so short and he wanted to see Jesus so he climbs up a tree and he never expected that Jesus would see him and invite himself to his place. Blind Bartimaeus sits by the side of the road and he calls out to Jesus to have mercy on him, to heal him. And when people tell him to shut up, he shouts even more. And then there's that paralytic man who gets four of his mates to dig through the roof, to lower him down, to get through the crowd so he can get to Jesus. And it's amazing what people would go through to find God. But when they do, it's amazing. And they don't have any regrets when they find him, when they finally meet God. I guess the question becomes then, why is it so hard to find God sometimes? Why does he seem so distant sometimes? Why is it that the Bible says that we will seek him and we will find him when we seek him with all our heart? And for that, I guess I would make three points. Firstly, I guess we can't really know what God's plans are. God is infinitely wise and knowledgeable, and we're not. And so we can't explain everything that God does. So that's, I guess, my disclaimer. As to the second point, there's this parable that Jesus tells about an unjust judge and a widow. This unjust judge neither fears God nor cares about men. But this widow, he, she comes to him and she pleads for justice against her adversary. And because this judge doesn't really care about people, he ignores her for a while. But she keeps coming back again and again. And the judge finally decides to give her justice because he figures that otherwise he would be worn out by this widow. Jesus says about this parable that it is to show that people should persevere and not give up. But he also says at the end of the parable, Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so the parable is about perseverance, especially in prayer, but it's also about faith. And I think the two are related. In James chapter 1, it says that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. 
perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete. And so it could be that in our pursuit of God, as we persevere in seeking him, that God is wanting to develop in us a maturity that we might be complete. The third point I make is that in this relationship between God and us, it's always God who takes the initiative. The Bible says that we love because he first loved us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we think about how God hates sin so much, and yet he would take our sin upon himself, when we think about Jesus, who is described as the radiance of God's glory, when he would take our shame upon himself and hang naked on a cross, when we think about the Son, who has been with the Father as one from the beginning of eternity, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he does that for our sake, we know that God is not indifferent. We know that, he is not un- we know that he's not uncaring. And so for whatever reason, when God is feeling distant, we know it's not because he doesn't care for us, because he has done so much to bring us into a relationship with him. And so we see Jesus in Revelation 3, verse 20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And it's such a beautiful picture of God waiting for us to hear his voice, to open up the door and to have communion with him, to spend time with the God of creation, to sit down with him, to enjoy his presence. And if that's not enough, you should read the next verse. The next verse always blows my mind, and it sounds blasphemous when you read it. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I find it amazing that Jesus would love to share his throne with us. But that's the kind of God that we serve, a God who will want us by his side on his throne. That's the kind of God who is worth pursuing. That's it.